Ring, ring. Say hello, cookie. Hello. Girl, I got something to tell you. Spill it, girl. Spill it. Remember old boy at the club? Uh, from last night? Last night. Well, what's up? Went home with a motherfucker. Now I'm thinking I'm fitting to God and get my ass two up. But girl. What? Dick so short. Huh? <laughs> Guffaw. But it's all good, you hear me? Because before I got them left this motherfucker, I hit this motherfucker up for everything. You hear me? I'm talking about wallet. I'm talking about credit cards, money. You know what? I was gonna hit the motherfucker up for his goddamn pistol, but I ain't know how many motherfucking bodies he had on that motherfucker. You feel me? This is Deep Dive Divas. Each episode, myself and a guest diva listen to every blessed studio album by an artist of their choosing and share our findings with you. My guest today is Joseph Glennon Jr. Joe is the producer of this show. He has a degree in marketing, and he spends entirely too much time in grocery stores. Joe also happens to be an excellent musician. You can and should check out his music using the links in today's show notes. How did you hear about Outcast? I guess my dad had the CDs around the house. He took my cousins to a record store. They picked out Outkast, and he was like, okay. And right away, he was hooked. I was sitting in a car at the tender age of 11 mm-hmm. with a bunch of older men. Mm-hmm. When I, I like first, where this story's going. When I first heard, this happened to me a lot. <laughs> and Ms. Jackson came on. And I was raised on heavy metal and a lot of other bullshit. And I just remember thinking, this is cool. And all the guys I was in this car with were also raised on heavy metal and bullshit. Right. And they thought it was cool. Well, it's funny because I feel like like there's something funny about it when you bring it up. Because you got to go, ooh, ooh, you know. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. I thought it was about Michael Jackson. Yeah. Well, the, the Ooh. you know, yeah. it's not far from the hee hee That's know. true. I assumed that these gentlemen had done something wrong to Michael Jackson, and they were apologizing for making to his mother. <laughs> Come back with me, if you will. Okay. To the year 1992. That's the year I was born. I don't think it's a coincidence that Outcast assembles on the year of your birth, Joseph. I think it's a coincidence. So, okay, let's go even (laughs) further back then. Andre Benjamin was born in Georgia, East Point, Mm. which is southwest of Atlanta. Hotlanta. Yollywood. Go ahead. Andre's parents are divorced. And this is something that comes up in his music and in his own life. He emulates this in his life. A lot of songs about divorce, especially Not starting around Stankonia. Yeah. It's like every album's got two or three songs about divorce. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, out. 
astronomical for i think any genre of music <laughs> country music not so weird okay sure outcast was on the cutting edge of the dissolution of marriage as a theme in rap <laughs> i would say uh personal issues in general i think they were uh, way more personal yeah than, and personable i'd say that they were yeah more personable than say the wu-tang clan who, yeah who it would seem aspirational to hang out with the with the wu-tang clan i don't think they'd want to hang out with me yeah that's what i mean i think outcast that, I don't think they'd want to hang out with me either, but no, I'd but want I to can, hang out with I them. Can pretend that I, you know, sure. I can pretend that they would like me. I can't pretend that the Wu Tang Clan would like me. Or like take like an NWA. Could you picture Ice Cube wanting to sit in the living room with you? I'd like to think I could. He would. I bet that the Ice Cube in the movie Friday would. That's a, he's acting. That's not him. What about the Ice Cube in the movie? Are we there yet? No, he wants to be on an RV. He, do, he does not want that. I have not seen the film. Or I guess he does want that. I don't remember. I was a kid. I guess he did want that, but the kids just made it... It, it, it wasn't what he thought it would be. So, Andre 3000 is born into a divorced household. His papa is a collections agent, and his mama is a real estate agent. So, both agents in their own right. Mm-hmm. Whereas Antoine Patton... Antoine Andre Patton. I've never seen them both in the same room before, have you? Antoine, his papa, is a Marine Corps officer, and his mummy works in retail. And these gentlemen, they're pursuing their studies at the Tri-Cities High School, which was uh, sort of like a performing arts prep school. Like the TV show Fame. (laughs) While they're in school... It seems initially they're vaguely aware of each other. Then they meet up at the Lenox Square Mall when they're 16 years old. And they really hit it off because they were both unusual. They dressed in preppy clothes. They didn't really like the same music as everyone else. They were listening to like De La Soul when everyone else was listening to, you know, um, Run DMC, Grandmaster Flash, stuff like that. So these these two uh, dinguses, you know, they're listening to Tribe Called Quest and their preppy clothes and they're just not, not really fitting in. But they fit in with each other. They start rap battling at lunch at the lunch table. And that's um that warms my heart. To know that that is a uh, time-honored tradition. I, I think of it as um, more of like a late aughts sort of deal. But uh, no, it's been it's been going on perhaps ever since there were tables. Did you partake in very many uh, rap battles in the high school cafeteria? You will not believe this, but not a one. No? No. How about you? No. These two gentlemen at the tender age of 16... They decide we're going to, um, you know, create raps together and we need a name. So these two guys who don't fit in with anyone, they try to become the Misfits. And it turns out that was taken already. Then they attempt to become <coughs> Two Shades Deep, which is also another rap group. Oh, is it? Yes. Never, that's not a great name. Yeah. I'm glad that didn't work out for them. So eventually they look up in the dictionary a synonym for misfit and they come to the weirdos no they come up with outcast and they stylize it with a k K, yep Yep. and that's kind of amazing to me that they come out with that when they're 16 and that's going to pave the way for the rest of their lives yeah now that's i would say Mm. the the first step in their journey to becoming their generation's beatles 
It's like, what if we take a name that's actually kind of an okay name and we spell it different and make it stupid? Yeah. It's the first thing that they have in common with the Beatles. Well, they're British. There's two of them. They're not the only young fellas in the neighborhood who are rapping. Really? In Hotlanta? Yeah. Believe it or not, the word got out on this and people are interested in doing this as well. And there's sort of like a, a production conglomerate called Organized Noise, mm-hmm. which um, is made up of folks who are going to be featured, produce on, and just generally be involved in future Outcast records, including Rico Wade, Ray Murray, and Sleepy Brown. Their big claim to the fame at this time is that they are producing another group from Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta. Yollywood. I don't know if they like it. I don't know if they like it when you call it Hotlanta. No. But we're going to. I think we can stop. Do you know who that, that all-female group was? You said all-female? Early 90s. Is it En Vogue? No. TLC? Yes. Ah, uh, one or the other. So Organized Noise and the Dungeon Collaborative are working with TLC, and they say, Hey, you outcast guys, get in on this TLC song. We're going to remix it called What About Your Friends? And you're going to be on it. And by Jove, they were. The music business. La Familia. There are other rap collaboratives going on down in Hotlanta, like Goody Mob, Mm -hmm. featuring unforgettable acts such as Big Gip, Jip, Cujo, that CeeLo Green guy, and Timo. CeeLo Green, heavily featured in Outkast's music. Now, what do you mean by that? He's on a number of songs. Understood. Think about the adjective you used. Heavily? Yes. He's built Is that like some me. kind of joke? Are you poking fun at CeeLo Green? Is this some kind of joke? They're still in high school, Joe, when they sign to LaFace. And it turns out... Andre 3000 will never graduate because he drops out of there in his junior year. Good for him. Whereas Big Boy graduates with, as Andre claims, a 3.68 and honors. Very early in their career together, they are deemed the player and the poet. And they're, in, they're um, kind of shoehorned in this dichotomy where Big Boy is kind of your more standard sort of rap artist. You can draw connections to him and other rap groups, whereas Andre 3000 is um, taking perhaps the road less traveled. Their first record, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music. One more time. Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music. Thank you. That album is more of a straight rap album. It doesn't sound that different from other things that are coming out at the time. Yeah, I would say that um, it's a darker version. It's somewhere between what um, Tribe was doing and Wu-Tang were doing. Yes. It's as dark and beat-driven as Wu-Tang. But But it also incorporates the themes that are so common in rap music. But it also, it even uh, in one one or two of the skits, pushes back against that. Um, I think the outro... He, he sort of admonishes listeners who only hear about drugs and, and crime for missing the point of their music. And I think it's true that, uh, you know, I think they were trying to put a message in their music already. Songs like uh, 
featuring heavily featuring CeeLo Green. Get up, get out, and get, get something. And get Absolutely something. a message song. Don't let the days of your life pass by. You need to get up, get out, and get something. Don't spend all your time trying to get high. Has a class element. They were for sure trying to write more mature music than a lot of. Were they eighteen? So they're sixteen when they meet. Right. The following year, they record TLC's "What About Your Friends," the remix of it. They also put out Players Ball, mm-hmm. which becomes the number one song on the Billboard Hot Rap Tracks and R&B charts for six weeks. They don't even have an album yet. Right. This is just a single they put out, and it goes straight to for number more one. Than a month. Yeah. Month and a half. And they're, they're, kid, they're still children at right. this point. The following year, in 1994, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music comes out, their debut album. And along with acts like the Ghetto Boys, Two Live Crew, PKO, UGK, these other Southern acts, they're considered pioneers to the Southern rap genre. If you're looking at the rap landscape of the late 80s into the early 90s, it is dominated by the East-West dichotomy. And the South is not really on that radar. The first record is produced by Organized Noise and the Dungeon Family, collectively. I think that what really makes uh, Outkast's version of it special is just the level of writing. I think that they were writing about it in a really personal and original way. It's very vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable. On some tracks, they are talking about how hard they are and how tough they are and how good they are at rapping, which is kind of what everyone else is doing at the Mm -hmm. same time. But they do open up. Yeah, there's something about their deliveries, like NWA's delivery is completely impersonal and completely like a put on in a certain sense. Not to say that they weren't tough, but that they were they were imitating rappers that had already come up with the flow pretty deliberately to have hit records. Uh, And I think that Tupac, even to a certain extent, imitates that flow a little bit more. But I think they something about that, like Southern accent, even just. Uh, makes the way they deliver it sound more friendly and more personal. And here's my theory of that. And it's just a theory. I got nothing to substantiate this, man. Uh Consider who they're working with while they're recording this. It's their friends who they grew up with, who they really became rappers with. Mm -hmm. It's a dungeon family. Whereas when you look at NWA, they're in these polished studios. It's a very clinical... They don't have a great relationship or even a personal relationship with their producers. They're much more manufactured. Well, if the movie's to be believed, it's a very contentious relationship amongst each other. They didn't really get along. Whereas Outkast, these are folks who want to hang out together. And they want to spend time together. And I think that's a much more comfortable environment in which a young man might feel more comfortable talking about more personal issues. Mm-hmm. I heard uh, Andre say in an interview once um, that he really appreciated the guys in Organized Noise for encouraging him to write about personal issues and his, his personal point of view rather than simply imitate the rappers that he liked. Andre said in an interview in 2017, looking back on their career and life together, Big Boy is smart as fuck. <laughs> Sorry. We went to the same high school. I dropped out in the 11th grade. Big Boy graduated with honors. When you watch early Outcast videos, Big Boy's the leader. He always had the confidence, where I was kind of like the shy one. Big Boy can rap better than me. I always said that. Right off the bat, Andre acknowledges 
that big boy is superior. He is more intelligent. He raps better because Big Boy is working on it. He is developing his rap style. He is making a conscientious and concerted effort to become better at his craft. Whereas Andre is having fun. And I think that's so interesting because Andre will eventually eclipse Big Boy in the public eye. It's not uncommon to find people who rally around Andre 3000 and say Big Boy was just kind of along for the ride. Because from their genesis... Andre says it's the exact opposite. The South will rise again. Oh, boy. I don't like that. Take it back. And it does at the 1995 Source Awards, where Outkast are controversially named the best new rap group. And they are booed as they get on stage here because what you have is a very tense room of West Coast rappers and East Coast rappers vying for dominance. And then in 1995, here are these chumps from Hotlanta. Yollywood? Sipping their mint juleps, listening to Leonard Skinnerd. R- riding around in a Cadillac. T- two dope boys in a Cadillac. Two broke, two broke girls, girls in a Cadillac. With their Southern twang accents. And they get nominated and win Best New Rap Group. But it's like this, though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and don't nobody want to hear it, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. If you're not familiar, Source is the longest-running rap periodical. It was founded in 1988 as, a, like, a newsletter. I didn't know that. So it was a big deal. It was I've a big heard deal of the Source Awards, but I, I guess I didn't really ever think about what it is. You could say they had their fingers on the pulse. The source. The source of the pulse. La Primavera. La Familia. Southern Playalistic Cadillac, Cadillac funky music. music. I added the funky that Goes time. platinum. That's right. And that means they sold... A million copies? One million copies. Ding, 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 ding. And they never stopped talking about it. This sets them up for the next album, AT Aliens, which drops in 96. Mm-hmm. In between the two records, they go down to Jamaica with their good friend David Sheets, who is better known as Mr. DJ, and they start to embrace um, a more natural aesthetic they do away with the labor-intensive cornrows and they're they say they're throwing away their brushes they're not going to brush their hair anymore they're going to start dressing differently andre takes it a step further he goes celibate he goes vegan he stops smoking pot and by the time they come back from jamaica they don't look like other rappers anymore And as we'll see on AT Aliens, they're not talking about the same stuff as other rappers anymore. They delve into sci-fi, hence the name AT Aliens. If you're not familiar, ATL is the airport code for Atlanta. Hotlanta. Yollywood. Andre is starting to emulate Big Boy in his studious approach to music, where he is now willing to change his lifestyle in order to bring out the best in himself, which he felt he did not on southern playlistic cadillac Cadillac music music. and i would say that at this point i wouldn't i don't think that they came up with a entirely original sound yet 
which they eventually do, but it is a completely different sound in a lot of ways than the first album. And it is unique to what else is in the pool at the time. Perhaps not unique to music, but it is different from whatever than what's topping the charts at that right. time. It's also, and I think that Southern Playalistic Cadillac music was too, they're both sort of like downbeat, gloomy, not necessarily sad. There's a tension all, at all times. It's, it's something you want to listen to with headphones on by yourself. Yeah. So you can totally digest it. I would say that too, of all their albums, I don't, feel like it has that many singles i don't know you know uh that the hooks are totally there i could see la reed and babyface being kind of annoyed with this record being handed in by a multi you know by a platinum band you know big boy has a child in between the two albums Andre breaks up with his longtime girlfriend, Keisha Speavy, who uh, was from Total. They're a New Jersey group. They're one of um, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, P. Sean Combs. It's one of his first uh, signages. Quick sidebar. Do you think that Sean Combs, P. Diddy, Puff Daddy is a wizard? Like a grand wizard? I sure hope not. No, like a real wizard. Like he does magic. I recall as a young man in the early 2000s, Sean Puff Daddy D D D D P D D Combs decided to run a marathon, perhaps a New York City marathon. That rings true to me. And they made this big, long documentary. It might have actually been 15 minutes in retrospect, but it seemed like a big, long documentary. A real documentary. About him running in this marathon. And he just fucking craps out. His his tooties are hurting. He doesn't make it. Ain't no way that guy's a wizard. No. Maybe that public embarrassment is what no. caused him to turn to the dark arts. Andre also, during sessions of recording AT Aliens, goes back and gets his GED at night school. If the music were ever to end, I don't want to be useless, he told Spin Magazine. Do you have your GED? I have a high school diploma. This album goes double platinum. Outkast produced the majority of the album themselves because they earned all that trust from the success of Southern Playalistic Cadillac Cadillac Music. music. And they insist on there being a great deal of live instrumentation on this album, unique for the time. They insist on producing it in the majority themselves. They're not bringing on quite as many producers as they had on the first album. When we started doing more experimental rap, started talking about aliens, that's when more and more white people started coming to the shows, Andre said. (laughs) We're from the hood, but that's not where our music stayed. It's really funny to think of it being specifically because they brought up aliens that brought white people into the fold, that white people were just clamoring, waiting. When is somebody going to rap about aliens? The term Afrofuturism, as far as I can tell, is coined in 1993 by this author, Mark Derry, but the genre of Afrofuturism predates this. And the whole concept of Afrofuturism is incorporating the experiences of black people in generally the diaspora, although I think you can find plenty of examples within Africa as well, of people who feel alienation, people who feel that their aesthetic is discriminated against and not seen as beautiful and seen as grotesque and embracing that, and also embracing elements of science fiction. 
Outcast is engaging with Afrofuturism, both on AT Aliens and their subsequent album, Aquemini. And they're by no means alone. Even in music, there is a precedent. A band that I think that they crip huge amounts from is would be, uh, and especially on the, the subsequent album, Aquemini, uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Absolutely. And pr- even predating George Clinton and the P-Funk, you have Sun Ra. You have a tradition in black music of engaging with aliens. And this is a tradition that goes on to this day. You can look at acts like Janelle Monet clipping where they're explicitly talking about the African diaspora and how that's an alien experience. And Afrofuturism, it's certainly in music. It's also in literature. If you read the work of Samuel Delaney, Octavia Butler, if you're listening to Cool Keith, P-Funk, Sun Ra, there is a rich tradition. If you look at the people of, say, Igbo land, west coast of Africa, and you are living your life, and then out of nowhere, a species of people who look different than you literally abduct you from your homeland and take you to a strange new world, it fits in very soundly with science fiction. It would be no different. This Absolutely. experience of, uh, you know, being on a ship built with technology you don't understand, uh, floating in the ocean, floating in space, especially the nature of the trade was so horrific that you wouldn't even necessarily... Thought that humans were, were capable ocean. of doing right, this. Right, precisely. So they're engaging in this tradition um, that I think a lot of people thought, oh, Outcast is so weird, they're talking about aliens. But there are a lot of people who are doing that um, in black culture. Yep. I guess Afrofuturism is just like sex. Every generation thinks they invented it. They also want to rein that in. Because while many of these tracks are out there and have a sci-fi element to them, you also have tracks like Return of the Gangsta, where they're saying, we still are rappers. We're still engaging with that genre of music. We're just doing things a little bit different. Andre said, I was young and wilder, and some of my fashion choices, people didn't accept at the time. I started getting flack from, uh, from some people. So they were like, either he's gay or on drugs. Return of the Gangsta was trying to give them a sense of, hey, I'm still a regular person. Aquemini is their third record, and it is a combination of their zodiac signs. Yes. Um, Aquarius and Gemini. Exactly. Uh, Big Boy's the Aquarius, and Andre is the, the Gemini. Aquemini goes to number two on the Billboard 200 albums. This is a trend they're going to fall into, and they are super salty about it. Aquemini, I think the average song length is probably close to six minutes. It's all live instruments, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think there's any um, drum machines on it even. I guess synthesizers, you know. But uh, it was all recorded with a band. Um, Every song has lots of singing. Their producer for the album, Neil Pogue, says that the process is like Motown, where essentially the band's living in the studio. You have this crack team of musicians, people who are contributing to the writing of the record as well. They would have live band sessions, and Andre and Big Boy would essentially work with the band in collaboration together to create these songs. They have a lot more time working on these songs than they did before, where they were pressed by the studio, get it out there, put out a product. 
Big Boy says, it usually takes us two to three years to make a record because we take our time. We ain't giving you that fast food trying to meet a deadline. It ain't no, done. It's a rhyme. It, it, yeah. He can't help it. <laughs> it ain't done until it's done sonically. Now, the third album is a great place to return to my Beatles metaphor. The Beatles first couple of records all kind of had the same sort of uh, 50s pop reimagined element and then they sort of reached that uh, more experimental period they started taking drugs uh, I think um, Rubber Soul Magic Mystery Tour those sort of records I think that Equimini is their that you know it's like they're alright we can do we can do the this is a pop song thing we can do that better than anybody else we can write our own material that's as good as getting our hooks from from L.A. Reid and Babyface, which a lot of rappers were doing. They were having professional writers come up with the hooks. They developed that sound in a way that nobody had before. Uh, and it's, I'd like to ask you, who's the Lennon and who's the McCartney? Maybe, maybe it's not useful to compare Outkast to the Beatles. <laughs> it's very useful, and I'm going to keep coming back to it. Outkast has the distinction of being one of the few musical artists to ever be sued by a civil rights icon. In 1999, Rosa Parks sues the pair in a legal battle that is going to stretch on for six years because they have a track on their album entitled Rosa Parks. And the only time they make any reference to the person in question is in the chorus. At no point do they say her name. At no point do they pass judgment upon her actions or legacy. It's strictly the title and a reference of moving to the back of the bus. Do you think that for one minute they ever ask themselves, gee, what would Rosa Parks think of this? Johnny Cochran becomes her lawyer in 2001. Rosa Parks passes in 2005 when this court case is settled. This is one of the things that she is doing with the last couple of months of her life. Following her death, some members of Rosa Parks' family, um, according to Andre 3000, approached him after a show and said, by the way, Rosa wasn't really interested in this. She wasn't really even involved in the lawsuit. It was more of like Johnny the, Cochran the, trying to the lawyer saw, saw this and saw... Keep his name in the papers. Yeah, they had, they had dollar signs in their eyes, essentially. So you might, you might believe that. Maybe that's self-preservation of her family. Maybe that's true that it's some greedy lawyers who really stress this thing out for six years. Yeah, it just feels like um, what more needed to be said than I'm offended. In 2005, Outkast, Sony, and LaFace, perhaps because they didn't want to be viewed as the people who beat Rosa Parks in court, <laughs> they say, um, we will develop and fund educational programs concerning Rosa Parks to try to preserve her legacy and, and um, educate people about why she's important and significant. So that's kind of nice. That is nice. Year 2000. In October, an album that's supposed to be called Sandbox comes out. And that album is Stankonia. And it wins Best Rap Album and Best Performance by a Duo or Group Grammy in 2002. But the album came out in 2000. How could that 
be? Because October's the cutoff, and they missed the cutoff for the 2001 Grammys, so therefore they ended up storming it for 2002 the following year. So they have like the first album out to be considered for the 2002 Grammys. Right, but that's usually the kiss of death. Attention spans are short. But not when you have an album like Stankonia. I don't know. Is it their white album? No, I guess I guess their white Jesus album <laughs> would be not. Speaker Box Love Below because it's a double album. Stankonia is their uh, their rubber soul. Oh, I thought you were going to say something pertinent. Following Equemini, they purchased a studio. This was Bobby Brown's studio in which Andre and Big Boy recorded together for the first time on that TLC remix. And they deem it Stankonia. And Andre names it this because he said, Stankonia is this place I imagined where you can open yourself up and be free to express anything. It's a combination of stank, which he equates to funk, and onia, like plutonia, a futuristic metropolis, right? Still in line with that Afrofuturist belief. Yes, um, there was a, a rule at some point in Parliament Funkadelic that you not bathe during the process of recording some of their albums. Like, until we're done the album, you know, you're living it. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta get the stank on you. You know? It's true. <laughs> this gives them all the time in the world. They own their own studio. You can sit there and fuck with just a kick and snare all day if you want to. You're not working on the clock. Really, you're just working on your mind. Who do you think said that? Was that Andre? Of course it's Andre. <laughs> he talks a lot more, huh? P-Funk stops bathing in the studio. Outcast stops, stops listening. Peeing. They stop peeing. <laughs> they give it up. Cold turkey. Nary a soul in this establishment shall urinate during the production of Stankonia. They agree to stop listening to hip-hop. That's interesting, because in so many ways, Stankonia is a more traditional rap album than, than Equemini. But it's also more of a pop album than anything they put out before it. Instead, they listen to rock music, predominantly by black musicians. So they listen to Little Richard. They're putting Chuck Berry on. You got Prince, Hendrix. Andre, while they have all the time in the world to mess around in the studio, he's actually spending a lot of time in his house playing acoustic guitar and like messing around with beats. And this is where they start drifting apart. And this is where a lot of tension formulates between Andre and Big Boy. And every record from here on will include lyrics about how, yes, they're still friends and yes, they're still a band. Andre wants to get a little more out there, experiment with other genres of music, whereas Big Boy's going along with that to a point, but he still wants to rap. And, and I think it works really well on this album because you have the aggression of rock music coupled with rap music. I think that shines in no track better than it does on B.O.B. Bombs Over Baghdad, my yummy, yummy song. My favorite Outkast song. And a one I considered because, yeah, I don't know. It's it's one of a kind. It has three bridges. It clocks in at 155 beats per minute, which is fast. Yeah. And the reason I love this song so much is because I think it is appealing to people of all sorts of preferences with music. If you like rap music, you'll love this song. If you like punk rock, you'll love this song. If you like gospel, you'll love this song. It has 
shredding electric guitar, drums at a breakneck speed, a choir outro. It's political, but you could blink and you'll miss it. By the way, I would say that Bombs Over Baghdad is sort of their helter-skelter. Would you agree? It is likely not a coincidence that at this time, rave culture is taking over Hotlanta. And you have new classes of drugs, like ecstasy, like designer pills, that are meant to keep people up and going. Little tidbit of trivia here. Stankonia, their fourth album, is the first time that Andre uses the moniker Andre 3000. Really? Yes. He wanted to differentiate himself from Dr. Dre, who apparently he was being confused with. But this is the first time he is credited as Andre 3000 in the liner notes. Huh. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that. I guess he never says it. And if you listen especially to the prior records, he is referred to as Dre a lot. Yeah, that's true. Miss Jackson (laughs) makes it to number one on the Billboard Top 100. It is ranked... The 13th best album of the 2000s by Pitchfork. And Bombs Over Baghdad is named the best song of the decade. By Pitchfork? By Pitchfork. Following Stankonia, they put out a Greatest Hits album with three new tracks on it, including The Whole World, which wins the 2002 Grammy Award for Best Rap Performance. So in 2002, they win three Grammys total. Two from Stankonia and then one from their their Greatest greatest Hits album. It's weird. You always got to throw on a couple new ones on a greatest hits, right? And if you're familiar with Killer Mike, are you? I'm a big fan of Killer Mike. Killer Mike really gets his breakout on that track. Right. right. Because he's heavily featured. And um, Big Boy is something of like a mentor to Killer Mike. He says so on the song uh, Snappin' and Trappin'. Three years later, September 23rd, 2003, Speaker Box slash The Love Below is given unto us. Their white album. It's essentially two solo albums yeah. spliced together. And the, the covers make that very clear. As it's usually shown, it's it's one CD jewel case cover. On the left, you got Big Boy, and it says Speaker Box. And on the right, you've got Andre 3000, and it says The Love Below. Big Boy is on the record saying both records are outcast records. They're just from two different perspectives. Speaker Box is a traditional rap album. Still, lots of live live instrumentation. Yeah, I would say that there's still plenty of experimental music. The hipster in me really wanted to pick Ghetto Music as my yummy, yummy song because that's such an experimental, interesting song. The way it, it switches between a really low tempo and a really high tempo. Experimenting with the sort of uh, elements of gospel with traditional rap music. Ghetto music features a Patti LaBelle sample, and they actually got her in the video. They got her in the music video, which is pretty neat. A great music video, by the way. Uh, Big Boy plays a FedEx uh, worker who uh, goes around uh, getting into misadventures. Speaker box, unfortunately, is home to my yuck icky song. What's that? Last call. Featuring Slim Calhoun, the Eastside Boys, Mellow, and the worst offender of all, Lil Jon. 
The reason I don't like this track is because it sounds like everything else. It sounds like a middle school dance in the 2000s. There's nothing exciting about it. It's overly produced. It does not seem to have much to say, which is the opposite of everything Outkast almost always is. So speaker box with three X's, which is perverse. Oh, because of porno. Is ingenuitive. It's a high energy album. The Love Below, by contrast, is extraordinarily experimental. Andre says this title comes from that bubbling underfeeling that people don't like to talk about, that dudes try to cover up with machismo. In hip-hop, people don't talk about their vulnerable or sensitive side because they're trying to keep it real or be tough. They think it makes them look weak. And that's something I think, not just on this album, but Outkast has always been doing, is opening up and being vulnerable and sensitive. Right, and, and talking, about, um, talking about how if you don't do that, you're gonna suffer for it. You have interludes like Good Day, Sir, which is essentially a who's who's on first sort of vaudevillian act. Uh, my uh, yucky yucky track is one of the other skits on The Love Below. Where are my panties? The morning after. What time is it? 7.48. Where, where are my, where are, where are my panties? Oh my God, where are my panties? Damn, what, I don't. Which is sort of a, like a, like a little mini movie in the middle of an album that's already really challenging, where we're forced to listen to a sort of like a high school kid's idea of a play about adult sexuality, where the characters say very clearly what their motives are. And they do so in these voices that say, I am acting. This is, this is the theater, you know? And uh, I just hate it. I just hate it. It's not a song. Sure it is. It's got a musical bed. Her panties were on the bed. If they were on the bed, I think she would have had a much easier time finding them. Thank you very much. This might be a good time to mention that I I ran the numbers and Outkast averages 22.83 songs per album. (laughs) Which or, or tracks, tracks per album, I should say, because they do this interlude spiel a lot, like what we did at the top of the show. Yeah, I would say that their skits um, get more elaborate as the albums go on, and they also get worse. I wonder if um, that whole overacting, overly theatrical thing ties into this idea. If you look at the music video for Roses, it's literally a high school play where you have this like. West Side Story Grease crossover and they're on like their varsity jackets and it's um it all feels very high school. I feel like in a way maybe their adolescence was sort of taken from them because they got so big so fast and so young that maybe this was a way of kind of harkening back to their youth. That could be me play- playing armchair psychologist. I don't know. I think there's definitely something to that. The album drops in 2003 by t- December of 2004. It has gone diamond. Which, how many records sold is that? A trillion. Not quite. It's on the way. 10 million? 10 million. 10 million, 10 million <laughs> records sold. Joe, this record, they stop being number two. They debut at number one and they stay there for three weeks. Wow. I think that The Love Below is kind of clearly inferior to Speaker Box. I think it's, I think some of its experiments don't work. Which is interesting because Speakerbox does not have the same commercial success 
as the love below yeah the way you move is a big hit but mm-hmm. it's not as and it's big a, of a oh hit. i would i would say that's a masterpiece in anyone else's career if jay-z put out the way you move mm-hmm. that would absolutely be one of his best songs yeah but it's it's outshined by both hey ya and roses i think in a certain sense sure and um, which are both on the love below so i i think speaker box is the better album as a piece love below has the hits yeah i mean the majority of the hits. Well, just the the biggest hits. And the smash hit of the album is your my yummy yummy song. Hey ya. I just felt like I was lying if I didn't say it was hey ya. And Hey Ya absolutely has the greatest success. They debut The Way You Move and Hey Ya at the same time. They come out simultaneously. I think Hey Ya's got to be one of the most covered songs of all time. Oh, yeah. I've done it. Have you done it? I certainly learned it. I don't know if I ever (laughs) showed it to anybody. It's simple. It's not a difficult song. It's the same chord progression over and over. It's acoustic guitar, which you sort of foreshadowed when you you were talking about writing of Stankonia. It's pop. There's not even a ton of rapping on it. No, I would say there's... There's kind of a call... There's never more than just couplets, right? Call and response. Hey Y'all is the last number one song on American Top 40 with Casey Kasem before he retires. (gasps) And it is also the first number one song on American Top 40 with Ryan Seacrest. (gasps) Hey Y'all remains at the number one spot on the Hot 100 singles for nine weeks. And it gets knocked off by The Way You Move. Really? So nine weeks I, later, I cannot are... be sure of this, <laughs> but Outkast might be the only group to knock themselves off the chart at number one. Five acts did it before, so I'm quite smelly. smelly. Peter's voice of man, Puff Daddy, Joe Rulnelli. And after Outkast, there have been seven more. Usher, T.I. Black, I'm Peas and Keith Swift for sure. Then there's The Weeknd and Bieber and Drake. Producing little songs that'll make your booty shake, oh yeah. Gotta shake. I don't know about you. I feel like my formative years, my adolescence, included Outkast music videos in the background, specifically from this album. I have a distinct memory of, in the early days of YouTube, sitting in my friend's bedroom, looking at his computer, memorizing Roses, uh, and then performing it to each other as a duet where i think i was big boy and he was under 3000 that's sweet it was sweet in retrospect though um for a band that uh sort of builds its reputation on material with depth that uh at this point in their career they were they were sort of framing themselves as anti-misogyny to have the outro of one of your big hit songs be uh, sort of auditioning different adjectives to throw in front of the word bitch is rough. That doesn't hold up in 2020. Andre said, when I look at when I look at the rap videos, you know, the rap videos, <laughs> it's pretty much the same video over and over. A bunch of women in swimsuits. And the guys rapping about money or jewels. Me and Big Boy wanted to change that. Their next album 
and their last album is Idlewild, which some people like you, you gross motherfucker, <laughs> consider this to be a soundtrack. Don't let Big Boy hear that. This is an outcast album. It isn't like a soundtrack where we go, get this person or that person. Big Boy said that. And I believe only seven songs from the album Idlewild actually appear in the film of the same name. People instantly start branding this as a soundtrack and the band is not like that. It debuts again at number two on the Billboard Top 200. Sealing the band's fate. But number one on the Billboard Top rap albums. Now this is yet another point where Outkast is like the Beatles. They made a movie that they're in. Success comes on this one, but it goes pretty quickly. They do not last on the chart for more than a couple weeks. And altogether, while Idlewild was received well, it's fleeting success. And I wonder if we could use this as an example of the quickening of the music industry, where what is hot one day is unlikely to enjoy success for longer than a few moments. Perhaps we're starting to see a disposable nature to entertainment. I think that the movie wasn't received all that well, right? Yes. So the film was directed by Brian Barber. They actually started writing a film that was supposed to be, um, Aquemini was supposed to be sort of the soundtrack to it. And it, it still followed a similar structure to what becomes Idlewild. So I don't even know how that would have worked. When they pitched this way back in the day following Aquemini, um, MTV, they were interested in it, but they didn't want Outkast to be in it. They wanted to buy it and cast Missy Elliott and Buster Rhymes instead of Outkast. And they were really torn up about that. So Idlewild was kind of sitting in the hopper for almost a decade. It certainly has a, uh, a ragtime, jazzy sort of feel to it. S songs like um, Mighty O, which is essentially a sample of Cab Calloway's Minnie the Moocher, right? Which was a jazz standard. Then you have songs like When I Look in Your Eyes, which... Musically, it, it stays a little bit closer, a little truer to that old sound. The track on this album, Morris Brown, uh, is talking about Morris Brown College and HBCU. And the marching band for Morris Brown College is actually on this track, which Probably I think my, is pretty neat. My favorite track on the album. Whether you like it or not, he's bad. D-A-double-D-Y-X-X. So this, this album, they do feature female artists on most of their albums. This album, I would say, is driven by the females on it. Probably the first time most people heard of Janelle Monet. Macy Gray is on this record. Great. Who also sampled uh, Get Up, Get Out. Macy Gray, a kindred spirit, um, another lover of rock music, like to, to outcasts, like someone who has incorporated that more than uh, she probably got credit for. When I was talking to my wife about this project i was talking about how much i love outcast and i had no idea why they stopped making music i had always heard the rumors that andre went crazy and he, he branched out too far and big boy wanted to be a more conventional artist the pressure must have just been too much and they split up they never split up to this day in 2020 not been any sort of proclamation about the two sealing their fate and ending outcast 
So there was a couple of years there where people were probably still just counting on the new album to come out. So in 2007, they do announce they're taking a little break. Andre's break is like, it was like five days because pretty much right out the gate, he is being featured on artists' original tracks as well as remakes for people like UGK, who he has worked with in the past. Rich Boy, Jay-Z, Devin the Dude, John Legend. I love that John Legend one, by the way. Greenlight. It is wonderful. Oh. But he's not making his own music anymore. He is interested in acting. He'll have a burgeoning film career in unforgettable hits such as Semi Pro. That's the basketball one. Jimmy, All Is By My Side, where he is Jimi Hendrix. Oh, he did in the, in the biopic. I guess I remember that. I never saw he it. He commissions and produces a Cartoon Network original show called The Class of 3000. Yeah. But he immediately gets busy making music, but with other people. Which is funny because uh, you think of him as the, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to make this this musical genre boundary pushing thing and he has the freedom to do that and he doesn't and now he's now he's what you sort of could have pigeonholed big boy as a guy that can just write a verse get on the microphone and leave the studio and call it a day and let you do the producing let you do the songwriting four years into the hiatus big boy puts out his first solo record sir lucius Leftfoot, the sons of chico bus uh, a chico classic Dusty. a classic and i think a lot of people were so disappointed and hurt that this wasn't an outcast album because it could be yeah it sounds a lot like speaker box a lot like stankonia it's in that like hype up mode and the first single from the track royal flush features andre 3000 so they work together on this album for one track but it's um it's just interesting they say change is dangerous as a king standing on the terrace while his partner pointing up at the rifle man coward shooter never know when your life will end then live like there ain't no model and if one come then this the motto right, big boy puts out his second album two years after that in 2012 vicious lies and dangerous rumors not nearly as uh well received but i, I think it. it's still a great album a fine album 2014 holds the 20th anniversary of super playlistic cadillac music and andre promptly says on they go on this 40 festival world tour only playing at festivals i believe coachella was the first show on the tour honestly just you know i didn't want to do the tour we hadn't performed in 10 years it was old songs i'm like how am i going to present these songs i don't have nothing new to say i felt like a sellout <laughs> and that's andre's comment on it almost immediately before the tour was even over was that i believe so he took to wearing jumpsuits uh with controversial statements on them and he said he was more excited about debuting his new jumpsuit every night than he was <laughs> to play outcast songs do you have any examples of what these statements were one says across cultures darker people suffer most why that's a good point another one says have you stopped growing that's not so controversial i don't know what else to say little bit hack i love old people <laughs> which type of stereo are you 
Okay, hand over the cure and stop playing. The hardest time of our lives. Art or fart? That's good. Thinking deeply about shallow shit. Sorry, I forgot to call you back. Everything is temporary. I've never been to Africa. People obviously want outcasts to get back together, and they're always being asked, when's this going to happen? The last bit we have about that comes from 2017 from Big Boy, when he's asked, will Outcast put out a new record anytime soon? And he says, you've got to talk to Jesus, man. I'm always open. I'm always open. So when plans and stars align one day, you never know. It sounds like... I have like- to piss. Excuse me. No, no, no. None, we're not allowed to do that in this studio. <laughs> not until we finish the record. Are we rolling? Yeah. I'm so sorry. The whole time I was talking about Idlewild, all I had... My mouth was saying Idlewild and my brain was thinking, I have to make water. One more second. The light is shining through that door directly into my eye. It'd be easier to turn the light on. That's good, actually. That's good. That's not the light I meant. You know, you being an insufferable little prick reminds me a lot of Yoko Ono, like in The Beatles. (laughs) Would Erica Badu be there, Yoko Ono? I guess not, because they stuck together rather than the other way around. Sort of like reverse Yoko Ono. What a girl wants, what a girl needs, whatever makes you happy gives me bees. Look at this stuff, isn't it neat for all these bees? Wouldn't you say my complexion's complete? No, wait, (laughs) that's that's not right. We have ranked each studio album by Outkast on a scale of 1 to 10, solely based on how likely we are to actively seek out each song on that particular record. According to you, Joseph, the best album by Outkast in their 12-year tenure is... Aquemini. What ranking did you give it on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 out of 10. So you want to listen to it front to back, no skipping. I've done it several times throughout my life. How about you? I gave Speaker Box The Love Below a 6 out of 10. And the only reason it's not higher is because I cannot honestly tell you that I would seek out the interludes on my own free time. So that dinged it quite a bit. Speaker Box The Love Below is perhaps one of the most interesting records I've ever heard. The more I've learned about it, the more I've come to appreciate the genius behind it. And I do view both of these gentlemen as geniuses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've spent so much time with them, I now regard them as friends. And I hope, a little unhealthy. before I pass, that I could think of them and have them think of me as lovers. <clears throat> In your opinion, what's the worst Outcast album? Well, worst is tough. I really had a hard time picking between Idlewild and AT Aliens. In some ways, I find AT Aliens a little boring, and I think I'm the least likely to seek it out front to back. But in other ways, I think I have to admit that it's it's Idlewild, even though I love some of the the highs on it more i just don't think i would ever seek it out again this absolutely kills me to say because 
this album has the songs that I seek out more than any other by Outkast. But to me, it is perhaps the most uneven record. I still love it dearly. But for me, Stankonia has the fewest number of tracks on it in proportion to the album as a whole that I would put on again. Hmm. It has my favorite songs by Outkast on it, but it's 24 tracks long. A ranking of three from me means that I love about a third of the album. Love it. Need to Mm -hmm. hear it again. Which is eight songs, which for a lot of groups is an entire record. Right. Right. So I do not want to present the image that I think Stankonia is by any measure a bad album. It's strictly by these metrics that I have forced upon you and all of my guests. Right. It's very mathematical. I didn't realize how mathematical you wanted me to be about this. Yes. I feel like I've way overstated my my number. For folks who have not listened to Outkast in a while, for folks who have never listened to Outkast, for folks who think they dislike Outkast, why should people listen to Outkast? Well, I love Outkast because they're the Beatles of their generation. <laughs> they're just great. Like I really do think that you you pointed out Bombs Over Baghdad is a song that has something for everybody. I think Hey Ya is a pretty universally beloved song. The idea that somebody has never listened to Outkast means that they're like five years old. And five-year-olds would absolutely love Outkast. Joe, good game. Thanks, bro. Same, samezies at you. I'll see you out there. See you out there. What's your uh, signature sign-off? You know, uh, podcasting's Jesse Thorne reminds listeners at the end of every episode that a great radio host must have a signature sign-off. The signature sign-off is my song playing. No, 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 no. You're a broadcaster now. Think like a broadcaster, damn it. Come on and feel this noise. Good night. We'll work on it. Life's a party. Go out and get some. That's my favorite one so far. I think you can top it. There's only been two. Do you want to hear mine? (laughs) Yeah. Hasta luego, Pasta Alfredo. And you think that's better than not having a (laughs) sign-off? No. Now that I say it out loud, uh, no, it's not. Young and sweet, only 17. I am the dancing queen. Thank you. Well, you could say, thank you, for being on my show, Joe and Outcast. Thank you for the music. This has been Deep Dive Divas. Let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> we don't have to do this right now. <laughs> <laughs>